Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to various people about the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and would like to have again, but they also pick one thing that they rather regret, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is a television presenter, writer and musical artist, Nick Knowles, who's been known to the nation since 1999 as the presenter of DIY SOS, the programme that never fails to make me cry. Yeah, you too, eh? He's also hosted the quiz shows Who Dares Wins, Break the Safe and Five Star Family Reunions, among others. He started his career working for TVS's news programme, Coast to Coast, and then became a member of Channel 5's chat show, Five's Company. He fronted Mission Africa, Saving Planet Earth, Wildest Dreams, and has contributed as a reporter and presenter for Comic Relief on a number of occasions. In 2018, he finished in sixth place on the 18th series of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. He co-wrote the film Golden Years and in 2017 released the music album Every Kind of People. His latest project is Nick Knoll's Heritage Rescue, a series of hour-long programmes for Quest. The series actually started on the 17th of November and is available now to stream on Discovery+. Plus. Each episode features an extraordinary rescue project full of complex restoration at places such as Castle Howard and Brighton Pavilion, which we talk about in fascinating detail in this podcast. Well, I talk about it. Nick's fascinating. Anyway, we talk about that along with five things that Nick would like to put in his time capsule. And here it is, recorded with Nick at his home and me in a little cottage in France. Oh, the jet set life I lead. Have fun. Yeah, could I have another croissant, please? Yes, I know you're my wife. All right, I know it's not a restaurant, for goodness sake. I've got to ask you, this is going to bother me all the way through the interview if I don't find out. What are those bungee ropes in your window actually holding up at the other end? Or what do you normally hang on those bungee ropes behind you? Do you know, I don't know. This is a French place that we've hired. It's very rickety. 
it could certainly do with you and your mates coming in and having a look at it. I think it's one of those, you know, but it's all right. It's nice. Apart from uh, my wife on the first night coming back from the bathroom and saying, what do cockroaches look like? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not good. You don't seem to see them very much in the UK, but the moment you step anywhere, even half decent places in, on the continent just seem to be overrun with the things, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we should definitely talk about your new program, this historical work that you've been doing, restoring Castle Howard. <laughs> no, not personally, but uh, that's a bit of a, a bit of a big <laughs> job for me to do. But no, I've been lucky enough to do the first six programs are out for this first series, and we're still working on the second six that should come out later on, maybe early next year. You know, it's been a real joy. They're beautiful programs to be involved with. They're some of the most beautiful stately homes we have. And in this one, you know, you've got Powderham Castle, Exeter Cathedral, Brighton Pavilion, which is just extraordinary. Oh. Castle Howard, Eastnor Castle, the seat of Charlie Courtney, the Earl of Devon. Wow. But also places like Wentworth Woodhouse and uh, and places that are community-owned as well. Mm. So really interesting, the differences and how these estates have survived. Oh. And, of course... Thousands of them disappeared between the war and now where families just couldn't keep them going and just couldn't, um, and as a result, these things look massive and strong edifices, but uh, leave them alone for sort of 30, 40 years and it's amazing how quickly they tumble down and nature reclaims them. Well, do you find that all over France where I am at the moment, just those uh, huge chateaux and then suddenly one would have been left for a bit and the roof goes in. And that's it. It's almost impossible to get back. We walked past one the other day, my wife and I, and it was absolutely gorgeous and overlooked a beautiful lake. Yeah. But it was clearly had just been left for 50 years and it was beyond hope, sadly. Actually, but, there's um, a difference in yeah. law in the UK than there is in France, which has actually meant that many of these places of really ancient times have survived. And it's primogenitor, they call it, which is the basically that the eldest inherits and the rest of the family yeah. get nothing by comparison. Whereas in France, the rule is that it has to be split between the children. As a result, these places are very often sold off in order to try and split the, the value between the families because they can't come to terms over them. Mm. So as a result, a lot of these places have stayed intact, whereas they wouldn't have done if the wealth had had to have been split. So that's very specific to the mm. UK. Then after that, you know, you've got various different parts of pieces in history. One of mine's favourite ones is the Dukes for Dollars, where um, the Dukes from here who had no money and tumble-down houses were going over to America, where the new money, the uh, yeah. Blenheim, for example, which appears in the next series, if it hadn't have been for the Duke going over and marrying Consuela mm. Vanderbilt, who was 17 years old at the uh. time, and then she came back, and at the age of 17 went from comfortable life in New York and the, and the Hamptons to living in a, a rainy, windswept Blenheim Palace that was falling apart. But it's her money that rebuilt it. But, of course, they're now very much, um, almost all the owners that you talk to talk about holding on to it as... Um, a, a caretaker. Yeah, probably more slightly higher up the chain than that. But, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I mean, they are basically holding on to it and making sure that they're all accessible. We're only featuring places that are accessible to the public and... Interestingly, talking to Nick Howard up at Castle Howard, uh, he was saying that his father opened, uh, was in the forefront and the vanguard of the people who opened up um, stately homes to the public as a, as a way of uh, maintaining them. And he opened up Castle Howard the year that Nick Howard was born. So his whole life, he's only ever known the estate being covered in people. And actually during lockdown, when he had the place to himself, 
he said it felt like the place had died because there was no one around. So he very much feels that it's that sense of it being of the community. He may well be the current curator, I suppose, is a better word, isn't it? Curator. Curator, that's it, yeah. But certainly he feels that it is very much belongs to the people. It just happens to have his family history running through it. Yeah, that's one of my absolute favourites, Castle Howard. You know, as an actor, I'd go around the country and go to all these places because nothing to do during the day when you're touring. So I've seen all these stately homes, and that is the one that I think is just is so beautiful. I mean, places like Blenheim are a bit mad, aren't they? They're, they're just a sort of a monument to battles. Well, they're actually all a monument to power and wealth, and they're mm. all there specifically to say, look who we are. So Castle Howard, even Castle Howard was that. I mean... We had a stonemason coming to do the restoration on the portico. He previously had worked on St. Peter's in Rome, in the Vatican, and basically said that the frontage of Castle Howard was the finest Baroque stonework he'd seen outside of the Vatican. Wow. All of these places were put up to say, we are here and we're proud. If you look at Eastnor Castle, which is one of the other ones that's in the series, it's one of the Marcher Castles. So all of that boundary land between Wales and England. And all along that, all the big families yeah. had big castles because they were defendable against invasion in whichever direction it happened to be happening at the time. Mm. So the Harvey Bathurst, who actually owned it, had a lovely Elizabethan-style mansion down there but really weren't as big as the others because they didn't have a castle. No. So they said, right, sod the rest of this lot. I'm tired of being treated as a second-class citizen because I haven't got a castle. So they built the ultimate castle. Because it didn't have to be defendable, they could build the ultimate romantic castle. And so it is almost like a Disney castle before Disney existed. It's just, it's perfect wow. and beautiful and stunning and... The drawing room is designed by Pugin, which basically, as I said, not necessarily to the pleasure of the current owners, but I said, standing in there, it does have a sense of the sort of the fairground ride about it because uh, yeah, yeah. Pugin lost his mind in his sort of mid-30s and you can understand why when you look at his designs. They're so intricate. It's like looking inside a madman's head. Mm. So that castle was built to say, we're as good as all the rest. We've got a castle. It's just that our castle is better than everybody else's. It was <laughs> it was essentially, you know, a house in Saint-Tropez with a Lamborghini parked outside. Yeah, yeah. Very nice. Well, there are some times if people go too far. I went to the art gallery in Dijon yesterday, and the first part of it was all medieval religious paintings. Yeah. And I've never seen anything like it. They were astonishing. And I said to my wife, these are amazing. I can't believe they've all survived so well. Mm. And she said, oh, that's because you can't read French. She said, they've all been renovated. What they call renovated in France means repainted, I think. Well, what's interesting in the stuff we're doing, some of the stuff that we're restoring, because we don't, they don't like the idea of renovating, restoring, and actually seeing people using tiny syringes to inject each of the little paint flecks to soften them up to be able to press them in and and then to use a mixture of sturgeon's swim bladder to create a glue that doesn't do any damage to it. I mean, how anybody found out in the first place that that's wow. what you use, I don't know. But um, <laughs> They're sticky fish, very sticky fish. Yeah, but on a ceiling that's like the size of a tennis court, and you think, well, this is a bit like giving somebody a pair of nail scissors to go and mow the lawn at Wembley Stadium. It's it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. But the thing I love about that is that the, I basically grew up on a council estate in West London, so I wasn't really from that background. And for someone like me to be in there and see the love and affection that all of these restorers have, many of whom come from my kind of background. And also, I think for the programme mm. too, I think these programmes are normally presented by people who are quite posh and, and wear a lot of tweed and look like they're people that might have been your history teacher at a good school. Yeah. 
for someone like me who uh, comes from that different background, who absolutely loves the architecture and the stories and the people involved, mm. you know, these things were built using wooden scaffold and ropes and pulleys lifting half-ton blocks of stone up. You know, the people that mm. did this originally were no different to me. So the story of these houses is not just the Dukes and the Vanderbilt money and, you know, the trading and the slave history, which obviously has to be mentioned at some stage too. Mm-hmm. But it's also the people, the builders who worked on it, the architects that created it, the stonemasons who were brought over from Italy. These places are repositories of humanity over a period of two, three, four hundred, or in terms of the cathedral, going back almost a thousand years. And the scale of ambition when everyone mm. was living in Watland Dorp huts to build a stone-arched building that's five stories high and is longer than a football pitch... It's yeah. just epic. It's extraordinary. Yeah. What I love about it is the tiny little human things that you find, that when they take a brick out of a column or something, on the back of it is the mark of the person who cut the brick. Yeah. You know, a thousand years ago. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. On the roofs at Wentworth Woodhouse, we discovered um, a piece of wood that had written on it a little poem saying, we three jacks, all three of the guys working on the roof were called Jack. We three jacks, Miller something and something. <laughs> Freezing cold, underpaid and can't wait to get off the roof to have a beer. It was a little poem they'd done. It was sort of basically went along those lines. And to find that underneath, that, that wow. the people that were on the top building the roof on the original place all those years ago, it's not only a connection mm. for me and gives the audience that, but also for the roofers that are working on it. They feel a very direct connection to those artisans and, and creative characters. So it's a lovely thing. Yeah. Yeah, because those sort of processes don't change, do they? They still have to stand up there in the rain and they still get freezing cold. So they know exactly what they're talking about. And there's a really, one of the things I discovered actually, there's a really lovely symbiotic relationship between the artisans and the workmen doing what they do now and these stately homes. If they didn't exist, these trades would have died out. It is actually the churches, the cathedrals, the stately homes and the restoration of those that means that these skills can still survive and do still survive. Yeah. Um, well, it's like Salisbury Cathedral has its own stonemasons section, doesn't it? Absolutely. Same as Exeter, exactly the same thing. Places like Brighton Pavilion doesn't have that, wishes it did have that. But Brighton Pavilion, actually, people should go and see Brighton Pavilion now. It's the best time that it, since it was built to go and see it because it is restored almost as new. And for the first time in oh. over 100 years, they've got all the... Queen Victoria didn't like Brighton Pavilion, but she did like some of the chinoiserie and things that were in it. So basically, when she decided to leave it, mm. she had all of that, including fireplaces, sort of jemmied off the walls and taken and installed in Buckingham Palace. Oh. All of those vases and various other things and some of the fireplaces are back in Brighton Pavilion. Wow. And of course, it still has the amazing kitchen that was built for the greatest chef who ever lived, yeah. called Marie-Antoine Carême. Everybody thinks it's a scoffier, but in actual fact... The greatest chef ever was Marie-Antoine Carême, and he was the, the first massive celebrity chef and cooked for Napoleon, cooked for the Tsar of Russia in St. Petersburg and came to Brighton Pavilion. Is he the chef, Nick, who introduced the idea of courses? Is it him? Um, when the Tsar of Russia arrived in Paris, he basically said, right, I'm taking Marie-Antoine Carême with me back to St. Petersburg where they had a thing called Russian service where they used to serve in courses brought to the table. Right. Um, and so Karem brought Russian service back to Europe and changed everybody yeah. in Paris. And then it was extraordinary. It was like, you know, he, mm. he was the eldest of 14 children, penniless, couldn't read or write uh, in the back streets of Paris. 
and then was running around at the age of 14. His, his parents buggered off into the countryside, took all the other rest of the kids, left him on his own in Paris, couldn't read or write, and with the name Marie Antoine, she'd just been beheaded. I mean, it wasn't a great, it wasn't an easy start. <laughs> <laughs> Not the best one. Yeah, so oh, yeah, no. it was lovely because there is that link to him, and I've spent a lot of time researching him and travelling to Paris yeah. to, to, to find out about him and look for his grave which wasn't a great first wedding anniversary for my wife, but there you go. <laughs> I mean, Bright Violin, it's interesting, my opening piece to camera, we were talking about the fact that at that stage, it was all very, very, when we were filming it, everything was very raw and continues to be very raw around race. And obviously, one of the interesting things about Brighton Pavilion, it is, the design of it is gathered from all over the world. It is, yeah. but what you actually end up with is a building that's like no other building anywhere in the world. It's absolutely nuts. And mm. you would think probably the most interesting building to work on if you're a stonemason. Although I did say that to one of the guys in the show and said, this must be the ultimate thing for a stonemason to work on Brighton Pavilion. He said, not really. I was like, oh, why not? And he said, because they took me off of doing Big Ben to do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a demotion. Well, um, the idea of this podcast, getting back to the thing we're doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is that I ask you to tell me five things from your life that you treasure. Well, four things that you treasure and one thing that you'd like to bury in a time capsule and forget about. Well, Odd enough, one would be a golf ball with EK on it. So these are my father's initials. So my father was kind of my hero. He was quite old when he had me, and I'm getting quite old now anyway. But anyway, he flew Hurricanes at the end of the Second World War. He was ground crew RAF. Then when they were running out of pilots, they made him a flight sergeant, or he actually went to Rhodesia, as he used to call it, um, all the time, Zimbabwe, to, to do his training. And then ended up on a troop ship out to Egypt at the end of the war, where he met my mum, and they got married in Cairo. And he was flying hurricanes over there in Egypt and Palestine and around that part of the world at the end of the Second World War. Well, with Roald Dahl, possibly. Well, I presume, yeah. Yeah, I presume. But my father passed away some 30 yeah. years ago or so. So we had we had some conversations. He didn't really talk about it much, but we had some conversations towards the end. And he told some interesting stories about training and almost falling out of the plane once during training and various other things. But... <laughs> But he said that they used to get up in their pyjamas and couldn't be bothered to get dressed when they actually had an early morning flight. So they'd basically put the parachute on. And then in the training planes, they used to clip their parachute into the seat. You do all your harness up and that holds you in the seat. And you used to clip the parachute into the seat. And that's what held you in the seat. You'd unclip that if you needed to get out. And it was a two-seater and the guy in front was doing some training. And he was basically just there to observe. So he hadn't bothered. He just like slung it over his shoulders and clipped it in. So he pulled the hood over because he was going to do some night flying. So he used to pull a hood over and he went, yeah, fine. My dad's job was just a sort of spot. And after a little while, he pulled the hood back and he said, I'm just going to try and do some sort of manoeuvres whilst night flying, you know, flip the plane about a bit and get myself back. And he said, yeah, all right. So the guy pulled the hood back and then flipped the plane upside down. Now, the difficulty <laughs> was my dad's parachute was clipped into the seat, but he hadn't done the straps up. So the parachute started to fall off his shoulders he grabbed his lapels and was starting to rip his own lapels. He was trying to kick the back of the seat because basically if he fell out, he was going out without his parachute. Oh, my God. And he said just at the last minute when his fingernails were like just about to pop off, the guy flipped the plane back over. And um, <laughs> But he didn't unclench his buttocks for about a month after that. So, um, <laughs> But he went off, the, went became a flight sergeant. There's no such thing anymore. You don't have non-commissioned officers anymore that are pilots in the RF. I'm, I'm great friends with... Um, John, oh God, um, John Nickel went into the RF club in London. He said, oh, you, your dad ever come here? I said, wouldn't, wouldn't have been allowed in. He was a flight sergeant. He wouldn't have been allowed oh. in the, wouldn't have been allowed in the officer's mess. 
But yeah, yeah so uh, so he was a great hero for me. He'd done all that and come out of the RF by the age of 21, which is extraordinary now, because I literally hadn't decided what I was going to do in my life by the age of 21. Different life and different... was taught me to go out and see the world and read and told me that I could do anything I set my mind to as long as I worked hard enough and all those kind of things, really. In his older years, mm. we, we started playing golf. My brother and I, and he would go... We couldn't get together for any other reason, but if we booked a, a round of golf, we would all turn up. But my father played the game entirely along the ground. He never really worked out how to lift the ball <laughs> and would take several swipes, all of which weren't counted, obviously. No, that's a practice shot. That's fair enough, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so he wasn't, very, he wasn't very good at it, and nor was I, to be honest, but in different ways. And we just had a lovely time. But my father, because he, I think because of his military thing, he would sign everything. Everything had to have initials on and his name on. So oddly, when it came to a memento of my father... I have two things. I have a small hurricane, because he, he preferred hurricanes to Spitfires, mm. and a golf ball with EK, Eddie Knowles, on. And that's sort of really... So my mentor of my father, weirdly, is a golf ball that's probably worth about two quid. But that's the thing that I would have to put in the ground yeah. to remember him. Mm. Also, I'd be interested, because I do archaeology now, and we dig stuff up, I'm fascinated to think what they would try and think that was in a thousand years' time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's the significance of that? Is it dedication to the planet? Are the pimples in it of particular importance because they line up with other planets around the solar system? Is it like... <laughs> <laughs> Almost certainly. Yeah. I mean, it is the truth that if you're finding things, if you're doing archaeology and you're finding things, most of the things you're finding are very simple, everyday things. The chance of finding the king's ring or something, those, to a large extent, have been kept anyway. Yeah, You know, they've been passed on from person to person, and so they've still got them. Yeah. But actually, like a little child's cup and ball, now that would be a precious thing to own, I think. I think so, because the thing is, my father actually had on his windowsill at home until the day he died a really grotesque ashtray and pipe holder that I made him in woodwork class when I was about 12. Yeah. And a horrific, twisty green jar that my brother bought from Woolworths probably in the late 60s. Uh, which was pence, uh, but he always had it and took it everywhere he went. And he had some very nice things as well, mm. but these had pride of place because they were gifts from the children. Actually, weirdly, I have a drawer full of all kinds of weird eclectic stuff from, you know, a shell that we picked up on the seaside or a pebble that we picked up in Tintagel with my boys. And mm -hmm. so I think those little small objects, one small object like that can open up a whole raft of memories and, and stories. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So the golf ball would have to go in, all to do with my dad. All right, we'll put that in. That's number one. All right, what would you put in as the second thing? Right, as is always the case in a podcast of this length, we have to take a short break here so that you can listen to some carefully targeted adverts. So if yours is for Viagra, there's obviously been a mistake. We'll be back in a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. I hope that lifted your spirits. Right, let's get back to Nick Knowles and find out what else he'd like to preserve in his time capsule. Probably one of my didgeridoos, I think. Did you play the didgeridoo? Yeah, not brilliantly, but I do play it. Yeah, I can do some of the... Yeah, I can play it, basically, but I can't do all of the animal noises that the Aborigines do around it. There's various noises that they use in their throat to make the noises of the various different animals whilst they're keeping a note going. Wow. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was basically circular breathing. That's how you keep the drone going. Mm. But the emphasis is representative of different animals, and they make sort of calls through their throat whilst they're doing it, which comes through as well. And it's, um, yeah, it's quite a complex thing. There's lots of different things going on. And I think I'd have to put one of those in because it kind of represents a couple of things. One is the travel. So very early after I left school, I went travelling and I went over to Australia. My mate was over there and I went over. I wanted to play rugby. And at that stage... The Australians had just won the World Cup and were playing a very fast form of rugby. And we were still mm. playing sort of stick it up your jumper and splash about in the mud. Um, so I wanted to go and play there. <laughs> uh, but also I wanted to travel more. And um, that started my wanderlust, really. And and whilst I was there, I got a job on a news organisation and started doing stuff with some Aborigine families and then went and spent some time living with Aborigine families. And since then, when I've travelled around the world, I've sort of lived with Navajo families on reservations up in Arizona and with various different cultures um, in Kenya and Samburu and Maasai cultures and various other things. So fascination with lots of many ancient cultures and many instruments. I've got like drums and... Sudanese drums and various other things mm. like Zambian sort of tribal headmasters and all kinds of weird stuff that I've collected around the world because the world is an amazing playground and so few people visit or go and see as much of it as they should. It's it's and it's hugely accessible and people should go more. So my life has been full of travel. I think also growing up, um, the early part of my childhood, I grew up in Southall in West London, and, and mm. it was a very, even a long time ago when I was a kid, when I was at primary school, it was a lot of uh, Indian, Pakistani, Sri Lankan, Goan, North African, Afro-Caribbean families. So my childhood was very multicultural. And when I left school and I was able to independently travel, I wanted to go and see many of the places I went to. And actually, a lot of the television, I've done work with the Natural History yeah. Unit, Attenborough in Borneo and in Africa, in various different countries in Africa and in India and, and travel with Comic Relief to do various things in various different countries as well. So I've been very lucky mm. with work mm. travel, but also travelled very much on my own. Of course. So I think for me, the didgeridoo would represent A, all of the travel that I did, going to the other ends of the earth and that sort of fascination with the tribal people that I've sort of interacted with and different cultures, really. Mm. 
Isn't it strange that people see that multiculturalism as destroying our culture, as it were, rather than enriching it? Yeah, I think, but I just think it comes from a lack of knowledge and fear. Yeah, always fear of the unknown. We are a very strange monkey, us human beings. We are terminally fascinated by things and we are incredibly experimental and brave. I was saying to someone, I had an experience last year. We built um, a place for a disability surfing group operating down in Swansea. We built a surfboard-shaped building for them because they were basically operating, looking after 500 kids with disability out of a bricked-up bus stop. And I was convinced that we could do something mm. better. So we did. We built this thing for them. And the thing that they said to me when I first met them was uh, about they, they took children, sometimes quadriplegic children, in chairs on surfboards out surfing. And I said, well, that must be... Actually, terrifying for the parents, apart from anything else. And he said, well, it is. (laughs) It is, but it's all about risk, and everybody should have risk in their lives because risk is a really important part of the human condition. He said, no other animal deliberately takes risks. We do. We go bungee jumping. We race motorbikes at 200 miles an hour. We, you know, go skiing fast downhill. We dive off of cliffs to high distances into water. We do all kinds of weird things, and... If you build a rocket ship and put two seats on the top of it, there'll be a queue a mile long to have a go on it. And if the first one blows up, there'll still be a queue a mile long to go on it. We are mm-hmm. an extraordinary, yeah. inquisitive monkey, which is how we've managed to create society by... I mean, you know, like even things like... We're not easily put off. Like I don't know whether you ever have um, great nutmeg onto your rice pudding, but right, if you were to eat a whole nutmeg, it would kill you. Mm. Sometime in our distant past, one of our ancestors picked one of those off a tree, ate it, and fell down dead. And his friends, rather than saying, oh, we shouldn't really eat that, said, how about if we just eat a little tiny bit of it for flavour? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. The other night I ate a pomegranate. I cut open a brown pomegranate, and then I looked at it, and I thought... Who on earth would eat that without knowing it was okay to eat? Yeah. It really looks as if it ought to be poisonous. But we are also such a contradiction. This this very brave experimental monkey is also very tribal. And it's really important to us that we belong to a tribe of some kind. And, you know, historically we would have had local village tribes that we belonged to, and those village tribes would have joined other county tribes, and then we would have joined up for armies, and somebody would have convinced us that if we all fought together we could hang on to what we've got against the people coming over the ocean. So you end up with countries as a tribe. And so we could be a small tribe, a county tribe, and then we could be a large national tribe. But we have to be tribal. And in the modern day, because we don't have tribes anymore to belong to, so instead we belong to supporting Arsenal or supporting Chelsea or supporting Leeds, and we could be tribal about our supporting of football clubs, which has replaced it. But also we have Mm. that thing where if you're not like us, then you can't be part of us. Now, very often on an individual level, you'll find that people who are against immigration will also have friends who are Indian, Pakistani or whatever and say, oh, yeah, not them, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they're part of our tribe. But we mean that lot. There's that faceless lot that I don't know anything about. I don't want them coming in. And it's it's just really odd. And actually, the, the one thing that changes all that is travel and sitting down and eating and spending time with these people and and understanding that, you know, we're all the same. And once you know we're all the same, it's heartbreaking to look at people who are really suffering in in Syria or, or Yemen or parts of mm-hmm. Africa at the moment because those children are just like your, you. Those mothers are feeling just the same as you feel. And 
it's very easy to compartmentalise that and live in a silo if you don't travel and, and see the world. No, I agree. I have a photograph that was taken in Syria of three little girls sitting in a doorway. And it's just at a moment where a bomb has just gone off. Two of them are just suddenly shocked and their hands are up to their face because they're shocked by the whole thing. And the oldest one is just looking at it. Yeah. And it's painful to look at because you go, oh, my God, you've got used to that. Yeah. We just did a building, um, a youth centre in a really difficult part of Bristol, and the care workers there were saying to me that if you can be a different voice in a child's life before they're 13, 14, you can change their direction, you can give them options. But children who come from difficult backgrounds, if they get past 13 or 14, have it so set in their minds now that it's almost impossible to change the way they see the world. And if they see that nothing good ever happens to them... Uh, they go forward on that basis and they become less empathetic and less connected as a result. Mm. You can see the hardness in people that have come from those areas that because they become used to it. The the series Peaky Blinders is really interesting because that's post-First World War where a lot of men who were in the trenches who genuinely thought they were going to die uh, suddenly came back to society. They had no fear of violence. They had no fear of retribution. They had no fear of hanging because they all believe they should have died out there on the Somme anyway. So the whole Peaky Blinder story is about men who came back and went, I'm sick of that, I'm going to go, and if it means breaking the rules, if it means putting my life in danger, it's like, what's the difference? I should have died last year. It's it's really interesting, Mm. the psychologies, and the psychology of, you know, these people are a threat, these people are damaging our society is... And, you know, we also know that there's a... Politics of separation really works for politicians when they can say it's not our fault, it's their fault. And poor people mm. throughout history have been told, yes, I know I'm taking a lot of tax off you, but it's not my fault. It's because those horrible French are, are doing terrible things. <laughs> 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 well, I'm here. I can, I can tell you that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, fantastic. We're going to put the didgeridoo in as your second item. Lovely. Okay, guitar, I think, probably would be another thing that I would put in because music's been an important part of my life. Not weirdly in the way that I listen to loads and loads of albums and so on and so forth. But my, from very early on, my dad used to play the mouth organ, but he had no rhythm whatsoever. So it was, he would play a song, (laughs) but tap his feet and in no way were the two connected in any way whatsoever. (laughs) My brother, um, my brother has become a very good musician and is, and can play almost any instrument. In fact, when I wrote a series called Histrionics, a history drama, a series in 2004, I think it was 2006, maybe, um, for the BBC. It was a sort of a drama based on real fact history. And when I was telling the real story of Robin Hood, I needed a minstrel to sort of wander through the scenes and connect the scenes. I rang him up and said, right. um, you're going to come and play a minstrel for me. He's like, I'm, I'm OK. I said, so I'm sending you a 14th century guitar, which was a sort of form of guitar made out of a pumpkin. Can you learn <laughs> to play it? I'm sending you some words through for you to sing, and you, can you write some music around these words that I've written for you to do? And he did. <laughs> and even at one point, because there's a joke in it where he sings something on this mandolin guitar thing, and then he comes to the end, <laughs> all of he and the Merry Men all turn to camera at the same time, and, go, and suddenly goes into Brian Adams, and everything I do, I do it. <laughs> Brilliant. So me and him have always played musical since we were growing up. There's been great musical moments in my life. When I was about 12, 13, no, it must have been earlier than that. When I was 10, maybe, I was at St Anselm's in London at a school fair and my mate came running up to me. He said, your dad's playing the bagpipes up the top of the hill. I said, that'd be ridiculous. My dad can't play the bagpipes. So we went up the top there. Sure, sure enough, he was there playing the bagpipes. And afterwards I said to him, 
yeah, I didn't know you could play the bagpipes. He said, well, you never asked me, son. So um, <laughs> it turned out that when he was in the RAF, he discovered that if he learned to play the bagpipes, they used to pay a piper to play at the funerals of the various pilots, and they were dying so regularly and they were having difficulty getting hold of a piper. So he learned to play the bagpipes so that he could actually get paid the extra money at the funerals. <laughs> Not possibly the best motivation, but um, but so, yeah, weirdly, he could play the bagpipes, which, again, might explain the fact that he used to tap his feet out of time because I'm, if you ever see Scottish pipers and they stand there tapping their foot, and, it's, and for me, it never seems to bear any relation to the song that they're playing anyway. <laughs> I think the Scottish have forgotten that the bagpipes are a weapon of war, not a musical instrument. They're mm. there to put fear into the, the opposition when you come marching over the hill and those things are screaming. I remember some years ago, I was making a documentary about the D-Day landings. And in amongst all the footage is this particular guy who got off the landing craft and walked up the beach playing the bagpipes. Mm. under the machine gun hail and wearing a kilt. And as far as the Germans are concerned, that must have been terrifying to think that there were nutters who were prepared to just walk up the beach playing a musical instrument rather than carry a gun. So They probably were trying to hit him. And if everybody's firing at this one person and not hitting him, he keeps coming. That must seem almost godlike. Yeah. You go, oh, no, we're finished. We're done. And the thousands of pipes when you hear them together is a powerful thing. And if you heard that coming over the hill, oh yeah, uh, that would be powerful too. I once rebuilt an eco-lodge and drilled water wells out in a, an area in uh, Kenya, North Kenya, sort of bandit country. And the local tribesmen came at the end to receive the place that we'd built. So we handed it over to the local tribesmen. And they had about 300 tribesmen come down the lugger, which is a dried up riverbed, all in full gear. And as they were moving, they were stomping on the floor. Now, a man stomping on sand shouldn't make any noise at all. But I've got to tell you, when you've got 300 warriors all doing it at the same time, that produces a low-level rumble that goes straight up your spine and lets you know that there's trouble coming. It was the most extraordinary feeling. So yeah, music and what music can do to you, I mean, I know it connects a little bit to the didgeridoo too, but music, my brother, my relationship with my brother, which all our lives we play guitar together, he plays in bars and clubs and restaurants and so on and so forth. If I'm nearby, I'll stop in and pick up a guitar and play at the back. He plays, he knows something like 3,000 songs off the top of his head. I can play any song that he's playing if I can see his hands. I learned to play and just watch him and I can play anything he plays. Brilliant. Yeah, and it's just great. You know, all of our family dues, my weddings, plural, my um, birthday parties, big birthday parties, always end up with the guitars coming out and everybody singing songs till three o'clock in the morning. Brilliant. The memories of my father playing the bagpipes and the mouth organ. My sister was all dancers. and I released an album last year. It should have been my brother, but it was me because obviously because I'm on telly, people ask me. <laughs> which wasn't very good, but I had the most fun doing it. So, yeah, I think that would have to go in as a representation of how important music was to me and my family and people connected to me. Lovely. All right, well, we're running short of time, so you better give me one more you like and one more you want to get rid of. It would probably be something like um, a dried foxglove, I think. Flowers and the smells, the scents from flowers, instantly take you back places. You can be walking down the street and you smell a perfume and it can take you for about 40 years to a girl you used to know, literally instantly. Mm. It was an adventure garden that I went and officially opened in a hospital, uh, Wexham Park Hospital in Slough. And people who had dementia came to life when they saw their favourite flowers and the scents from the flowers just brought them back and sort of made them very talkative and chatty and... And well, and there's something about flowers. And for me, I remember when I was about four years, four or five years old, being led through Ostley Park 
which is our Ealing Way. Mm-hmm. Beautiful park surrounded by a farm which has a stately home in the middle of it, very much like the series I'm doing at the moment. Actually, Austin Park would be a good one to do. And there was a clearing in the trees and a foxglove. And I remember saying to my dad, it's a really beautiful flower. And he told me it was a foxglove and it was beautiful because on the one hand, it was poisonous, but on the other, it was also used as a heart medicine so it could cure people. So it was a lovely dichotomy. And it was also mm. incredibly beautiful, like a British orchid. Weirdly, I've always chosen places that I go to live. If I go to live or I'm going to move, like I moved to the Cotswolds here, I'll drive around for a bit and see if there are any foxgloves in the area because it makes me feel comfortable living there (laughs) if there are foxgloves. And one thing that was bothering me, there weren't any irises, which was my mum's favourite flower. And I moved in here, and three months after I moved in, in a hedgerow on the opposite side of the road a bunch of wild irises came up through the hedgerow uh, directly in front of my front door. So I'm not much of a one about all that spirituality thing, but um, if there is a spirituality for me, it's in nature and in the world around us. And one of the great things about lockdown has been actually how everybody's connected so much better to the countryside around them and the environment we live in. I understand I'm very lucky to live in the Cotswolds, which is a, is, you know, is a beautiful part of the UK. You know, I'm sitting here looking out over a field that's got polo ponies in it little Cotswold wall, I've got wildflowers, I've got late raspberries, a Scottish form of <coughs> yellow raspberry that's still producing raspberries just outside my door here. I had a couple of those this morning. And I just think some representation of that, I spent a lot of time in and around nature with doing field archaeology and things. I'm very comfortable outside. Uh, one of the greatest moments ever when I was living with the Navajo in Arizona, I was living in a Hogan, which is like a, like a wooden teepee. And mm. in the evening... I used to sleep on the floor in the main room and there was like a little bedroom off that the elderly couple I was staying with used to stay in. One evening, I was awoken by him giving me a slight punt in the ribs, uh, kicking me, saying, you need to go outside. I was like, okay, there were 80. I thought, well, maybe that's their night of the week or night of the month that they get, you know, they want me out. So yeah. I went outside, they dragged out these skins and put them on the floor and he said, you sleep here. I was like, okay. And I sort of curled up on my side and then he walked to the door and he came back again. He looked at me and went, no, look up, and then walked away. And I looked up. Um, the expression of blanket of stars, because there was no light pollution anywhere. It's totally clear sky. Mm. You could not see black for white. You could not see spaces in between the stars. It was literally a blanket mm. of white, and it was gobsmacking and awe-inspiring. And I've been lucky enough to have this in uh, the Okavanga Delta in Botswana and I've had it in Australia and uh, various other places around the world with big skies where you feel so connected to nature and and to the planet, uh, this rock that we're revolving on. So some form of that. And I think something, again, in the way that, like, the golf ball is a little thing that represents everything about my father and family, really. Uh, An iris, a pressed iris and a pressed foxglove which were my mother and father's two favourite flowers, I think would represent my view of... I mean, I'm a, I'm a patron of Born Free Foundation, protecting endangered species around the world. I've done all these things, you know, as I say, with the Natural History Unit. My love of nature and camping outside and being in amongst it is is huge. So, yeah, I think those two things would be a lovely, simple representation of that. And my mum and dad Absolutely. introduced me to it. Yeah, I have to say, um, you've got the idea of this podcast quicker than almost anybody else I've spoken to. Oh. That is exactly the essence of this thing, is you're looking for little simple things that make you look at the bigger thing. Well, it's very kind. I can make it very simple for the one that actually I'd bury and never want to see again as well. Yeah. is my laptop. 
<laughs> I want to get rid of technology. I want to put my laptop in a hole in the ground and cover it up and never visit it again. Mm. Look, technology helps us all get through lockdown. It's been amazing that we, you know, that you and I can talk with you in France and me here. And yeah. but I worry so much for our young people. Everything is so on show. Is there going to be anyone going for a job as a senior director or a politician in 20 years, 30 years' time who hasn't said something stupid during their formative years on social media? I'd hate to think that I would be judged now on on things that I thought when I was 15, 16, 18 years old. Mm. You know, life has to knock the corners off you. You have to meet people. You have to learn. You have to open your ears and listen to people. People being judged on their half-formed personalities um, where you might make bad decisions or have bad thoughts or be led into the wrong kind of thoughts and that being a permanent part of your life, I think is the worst part about all social media. And we're in a more judgmental, you know, and it, like, we, we respond so much to judgmental as well. A uh, hundred years ago, every village had an idiot, you know, a horrible person in the village who everybody knew who it was and steered clear of because they were a horrible person who did nothing but be horrible. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, all those horrible people can get together and be a community online and suddenly we have to apologise to them if they're upset about something or... Do you know what I mean? It's like, we yeah. it's too much. We've got to somehow get back to using our facilities. And I think young people are starting to get it. I was interested to read the other day that many of the young millennials in Silicon Valley will not take their laptops or their phones home with them. Very good. They will leave their work at work. And I hope we learn to do that. I hope we learn to get back to the point where these amazing, this amazing technology, that creative and inquisitive monkey has created, it goes back to being a connectivity tool rather than allowing that judgmental side of that monkey to come out too. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. In the old days, we would go into a pub. If we didn't like the way people were talking in there, we'd go to a different pub. Yeah. But now we're all in one great big pub. Yeah. And you have to put up with all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And we apologise to people that we shouldn't, not not many of the big corporations and, and you know, public facing businesses now are, oh my gosh, we've, you know, we've had six complaints out of five million. Yeah. But we know nothing about those six people. We have no idea what axes they have to grind. We, you know, why, why are we responding to that? We really, you know. I know. I once did a radio show on Radio 4 in the 1980s. And the only way you would understand what the complaints were, would you'd go to the log. So the phone calls that actually came into the BBC, they would log them. And within an hour of a programme that I was in going out, we'd had three and a half thousand complaints on the phone. Yeah. Now, I think that's complaining. That's proper complaining. But I'm rather proud of it. Yeah, you should, so you should be. <laughs> I don't know why we have to have everybody agree with us all the time. The whole purpose is surely to challenge people. It worries me a lot when you get um, universities banning people from coming and speaking at universities. Universities of all mm-hmm. places should be listening to everybody speaking. Let people hang themselves with their own horrific views, but listen to everybody, you know. Yeah. Learn what people are saying. It's a very thin end of a very nasty wedge if you start banning people and not allowing people to come and speak because you don't agree with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Know thine enemy. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think we're in interesting times. I've enjoyed the chat, though. I'm sorry I went on a bit. It's absolutely perfect. It's been brilliant. And it's really sweet of you to do this. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And good luck with the series. It sounds absolutely fascinating. It's a really lovely series. And I, I hope it draws more people in than would normally watch maybe a Heritage Building series. It's, you know, I think probably if I have one skill, it's being able to speak to a tramp or the Prince of Wales and have a decent conversation with him. And, and actually, 
I think having someone like me do a series like this, where I'm looking for the people and personalities and the stories that bring these buildings to life, I think has worked really well. I'm very proud of it. It's beautifully shot as well. And these places are just stunning to look at. Mm. And they are our heritage. You know, there's many, many stories to be told there. So, Well, you, you definitely do have that skill because you've managed to talk to an old actor for ages and I haven't told you one anecdote. <laughs> Not one. <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens in France and my guest, Dick Knowles, inevitably. Merci, mon ami. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, there are plenty more for you to listen to on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from. You just subscribe to My Time Capsule and you'll get every episode as they're released for your listening pleasure. Please do rate the show and maybe even write a review. And you can follow me or My Time Capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook for inside info and previews of all our guests. The My Time Capsule theme tune is available to download on Spotify in full and was written by Dennis Waterman, who wrote the theme tune at... Oh, no, sorry. No, it was written by Pass the Peas Music, who actually did write the theme tune and played the theme tune. This was a cast-off production, and the highly skillful producer was John Fenton Stevens. Yeah, I apologise for the Viagra joke earlier, but at least, even though I'm in France, I didn't stoop to the level of making jokes about prophylactics. You know, French letters. Or as the French call them, letters. See you next time. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.